This is the New Song Church podcast. You're listening to a service from our church in Oklahoma City. Wherever you're at today, we hope this helps you to better know God and to practice the way of Jesus. Now here's the message. There's a story recently on the life of John Wesley where he was in his town kind of walking down the streets. This is in the 1700s. And a guy comes racing up to him on a horse uh, with a look of, of panic on his face. This guy jumps off the horse, walks up to John Wesley and says, Mr. Wesley, I have some terrible news. I just came from, from your home and your house has burned to the ground. It's, it's completely gone. John Wesley, upon hearing this, kind of ducks his head for a moment, collects his thoughts and looks up and with a crowd around him, he says these famous words, no, the Lord's house burned to the ground. That means one less responsibility for me. In this moment of devastating material loss, you see this this heart posture of, of John Wesley that says, no big deal, wasn't really mine anyways. On this, uh, about this story, in the book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, Randy Alcorn says this, his reaction didn't stem from a denial of reality. Rather, it sprung from life's most basic reality that God is the owner of all things and we are simply his stewards. God is the owner. We are just stewards. God owns everything and we're just kind of renting it, right? Because John Wesley truly believed that in his heart of hearts, we, we see him in this moment of devastating material loss having the ability to shrug it off from the perspective of trust in God. And and also what we see here on display is this idea of zero attachment to material possessions. And I think we we hear a story like that and we can't help but kind of go, well, yeah, but that was John Wesley, right? Like, yeah, you know, he did that, but that's kind of crazy like for us to do. I mean, for real, imagine somebody comes up to you today and they say, hey, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I just came from your house and it burned to the ground. And remember, this is the 1700s. Like he doesn't have some kind of insurance policy that he can file a claim and get everything back. Like to, to have your house burned to the ground is to me, it means you lost everything. That's what he really faced. So imagine that for you and your, your response to that is no big deal. Wasn't really mine anyways. It's pretty wild. And I think that we, we tend to hear that story and we think that's, that's crazy, that's John Wesley, but, but may I present you with something else? What if that's not crazy? <laughs> what if we're so attached to our material things that it makes a story like that seem crazy? And what seems crazy to us is having that kind of detachment from material possessions. I think there's something to hearing a story about somebody shrugging off the loss of everything as being no big deal that kind of points out maybe some of the absurdity to the connections and attachments we have to material things. What if I was to tell you that the kingdom response of a person who has chosen to make Jesus their rabbi and follow him with everything they have, the the kingdom response to hearing news that maybe you've lost everything would be no big deal, wasn't mine to begin with? So how are you doing with that? If you haven't guessed, uh, we're talking about generosity today, kingdom generosity. And I'm going to be up front with you. I'm going to talk to you about money today, your money. And I get that this is one of those subjects that can be, you know, kind of hard to swallow. Like we don't always like to hear. It can be a little uncomfortable at times for us to hear this. And I, and I get why that might be the case for you. There maybe is a little flinch in you because of maybe some of what you've seen in the church and the kingdom of God as a whole. There hasn't always been in the church people who have done this in a sound way. There's been people who have abused this message. But the, but the reality is money is a big deal, isn't it? In fact, if I was to go up to every person in this room and I was to ask you this question, what are five areas you'd like to see God move more in your life? I bet you every one of you in here would list money in your top five. Money's a big deal. And Jesus knew this. And so Jesus talked a lot about money. If you actually look at the the priorities that Jesus put in his preaching practices, the number one thing that he talked about more than anything else was the kingdom of God. Number two was money, and then it falls off a cliff after that. Jesus talked more about money, three times more about money than he talked about love, seven times more than he talked about prayer. 
He talked more about money than he talked about heaven, hell, or eternity. 17 of his 39 parables, 43.59% were about money, and around 25% of Jesus' overall teaching is directly about material generosity. Why did he do this? Well, I believe Tim Keller says it pretty well. He says, Jesus spoke about wealth and possessions because they are deeply connected to our spiritual lives and priorities. Money's a big deal, or as Jesus put it in Luke 12, 34, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There is nothing that will contend for your heart. There is nothing that can draw you away from having a heart towards the things of God than money and possessions and stuff. Jesus knew this, and so he talked about this quite a bit. And, and yet, if I'm being fully transparent with you, I've been studying this and looking at this message for about two weeks now because I had some extra time off. In the process of doing that, I went back and I looked at the past eight years of New Song history. In eight years, we've teached about 420 unique messages on the weekends. Of those 420, only 11 have been dedicated to the subject of money. Four of those were in year two when we taught a series. So basically, about once a year, we talk specifically and dedicate a service to this topic of money. 2.62% of the time when Jesus talked about it 25% of the time. That tells me something. It tells me we're not nailing it on this. And so I want to just start off by saying, I am sorry. As your pastor, I want you to know I am sorry for maybe shying away from this subject because I know it can be a little contentious. But I also want you to know that if we're going to be the people that we claim to be, people who are practicing the way of Jesus, we can't sidestep this topic. If we're going to be people that say that the priorities of Jesus are our priorities as well, then we have to value and teach boldly and frequently about the same things that Jesus taught about boldly and frequently. And so today I want to take you through what the Word of God has to say from the Old Testament into the New and, and, and right through to the New Testament church related to money. We're going to look at what it says in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. We're going to look at the New Testament pre the ministry of Jesus. We're going to look at what Jesus taught specifically. And then we're going to look at how it was walked out in the New Testament church. And then I'm going to give you some practical ways to apply this to your life. And if you don't like what I have to say tonight from 530 to 6, I will be in the dunk tank at Festival. <laughs> And you can take some of this money that you don't want me talking about and you can use it to throw balls at me and knock me into the water. And all the money that comes in through that is going to go towards missions, all right? If you got your Bible, if you got your Bible, go to Exodus chapter 16. And I'm going to ask you to open up your heart to what God wants to say on this subject. Let's pray. Lord, we, we, we come to you today and we would just say that we want all of you and we, we say that we want you to know you can have all of us. You can have it all. And, and in that statement, Lord, we don't set aside our wallets and our purses and our bank accounts and our financial planning in saying that to you. Lord, we say, we say we want to have a heart that says you can have it all because that's what you gave to us. You gave it all. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at this subject today, Lord, I pray for anyone who might be in here that's feeling the tension of this subject. I pray for anyone who, who maybe has been under a, a church or a house where this has been abused, anyone that might have a little bit of a flinch in them. Lord, I just pray that, that you would bring peace to their hearts and their minds, that we would be open to what you have to say today. Lord, we want to be your kingdom come. We want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth. And if there's a part of our heart that we've withheld from you, Lord, if there's a part of our heart or part of our life where we've said, God, that's off limits, Lord, I pray that you would awaken us to that so that you can truly have it all in our life today. Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen. Exodus chapter 16. Let me set this up for you. The children of Israel are, are in the wilderness. Now, getting to this place, they've seen God show up in some pretty like radically amazing ways, right? God has come along and they were, they were prisoners in Egypt and God has freed them. He's brought them out of Egyptian captivity and freed them and brought them to this place. And, and in the process of doing this, he's done some amazing stuff. There's been the, the plagues that have taken place that, where, where God like does this stuff, like makes all these crazy things happen and they're protected from that. And it's through all of that that eventually the Egyptians set them free. After they're set free, they're, they're, they're leaving and they're escaping. The Egyptians' hearts change. They come back after them and, and we have the whole Red Sea thing where they're able, able to cross over and then their enemies, the, you know, the Red Sea crashes down on them. So they've seen God like show up, right? 
And now they're in the wilderness. And the wilderness represents this place where the wilderness cannot provide for them what they need. They cannot find what they need for provision in the wilderness. So that means that God has to be their provision. And so God, what God needs to do is what he's been doing. He needs to keep showing up and providing for them. And that's exactly what he does. There's this stuff called manna. Somebody say manna. Manna that God causes to, to be on the ground every day. It's, manna means what is it? That's, that's what the word means. And it's this bread of heaven that God just causes to be the, uh, on the ground each day for them. Beyond that, when they complain about the manna and they want some meat, God causes quail meat to just show up on the ground every day. And so supernaturally, I want you, what I want you to see is supernaturally provision is, is showing up for them. God's coming through for them. And what we're about to read here is God's giving them instruction on what they're to do with this provision that he's providing. All right. Verse 16, Exodus 16 says this. This is what the Lord has commanded. I want you to notice it's a command. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer. That's a, like an Old Testament measurement. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, check this out, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. So we see here on display God's people walking in obedience, doing what God has told them to do, and in doing so, they have the provision of God, and in the provision, there's enough for them, and there's enough for their family. They have enough. On this text, A.W. Tozer says this, the manna in the wilderness reminds us that God's provision is not based on our efforts, but on His grace. Whether we gather much or little, He ensures we have just what we need. So when they gathered and they shared according to God's instructions, they had enough for themselves and they had enough for their family. Their basic needs are being met in their obedience to the Lord and through His provision. So things are going pretty good. But how many of you know in the Old Testament, it doesn't take long until things are going pretty bad, right? The people are doing good, and then all of a sudden they start to drift. Two verses later, verse 20. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, which means that they weren't obeying God. They started disobeying what God told them to do. But some of them left part of it, or in other words, they were keeping part of it, until the morning, and it bred worms and stank. So here's what they did. God said, I don't want you to save. He said, I don't want you to store. I want you to gather what you need for the day. But they start to save extra. Why? Because what if God doesn't come through tomorrow? Like, I know he's got us to this place. And I know that he's been providing. But what if he changes? Like, isn't it just smart on our part to save some extra, to put some extra away, to keep a little bit more? Because, you know, what, what if something happens? What if the heart of God changes? Like, we got, it's just safe. I know it's disobedience, but it's also, it's kind of safety, like for us to collect, for us to hoard a little bit extra. And so they're trying to collect extra. But here, here's the problem. They're not trusting God. They're not trusting God for tomorrow. Even though God's been faithful today, they're not trusting him for tomorrow. So they're not obeying him today. And because of that, God gives them this food. And when he gives them this food, he gives them this food that expires overnight. Because he's trying to work something out of them. He's trying to work out of them a mentality called a slave mentality. All these people have ever known is scarcity. All they've ever known is slavery. They've lived under a master who doesn't care about them, who doesn't care about their family, who doesn't care if they have enough, who doesn't care if they're full and supplied. All they care about is their production. That's all they've known. And so because of that, they've learned to live with a scarcity mindset. We got to hold on to what's ours. We got to save up. We got to collect. We got to be careful because there may not be enough for tomorrow. We don't know our master, man, his mind changes all the time. And tomorrow may be a bad day. So we got to collect. We got to save. And God's coming along. He said, hey, there's a new master in town. And I love you. And I'm not just about your production. I care about you. And if you will trust me and obey me, you will have enough for today. And I will show up and continue to show up for you each and every day. There's a new master. God is teaching them a new way of living. Not a scarcity. Because see, if we live from that standpoint of slavery and scarcity and we don't trust our master, what we're going to do is we're going to hoard and we're going to hold on and we're going to feel like we have to be our own provision. God's working that out of them. 
We see this carried out even further in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. God's giving them instruction on how they are to live in this kingdom community that he's called them to. Verse 9 says this, When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of the field, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines, and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. Notice how he ends it. I am the Lord your God. Interesting what God's doing here. He's freed these people and he's teaching them to trust him and then he's teaching them to think about the others. And he he actually is, is teaching them, here's how I want you to live your life. Here's how I want you to structure your life. A portion of what you grow, a portion of the production of your hands that you are tending to, seeds that you're gonna plant, gardens that you're gonna till, a portion of that is not for you. It's for those who are in need. God says, leave the edges of your property fruitful. I want you to work those edges. I want you to produce in those edges, but it's not for you, it's for others. We see this commandment in Deuteronomy 24 repeated, but God frames it this way in verse 17. Do not, notice how he puts it, deprive. That word deprive there means rob. Do not rob the foreigner of father or the fatherless of justice. That, that idea of justice there means to steal away from them. Or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember, look at this. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord God redeemed you from there. That is why. That is why. Because I redeemed you. That is why I've commanded you to do this. And in the same commandments, when when you're collecting your crops, leave some behind for those in need. So we see here in this text, as God is giving instructions to kingdom living according to to his rule and reign in their life, we see from his perspective that if if you buy seeds and you plant crops and you tend those crops and you take the full harvest of that for you and yours, according to what God says here, you're depriving the world of justice. You're robbing and you're stealing. And the motivation behind this, remember that you were slaves. In other words, God's pointing them back to what it was like in Egypt. Remember when you were in Egypt and and you didn't have anything? And and you were reliant on a slave master who just barely gave you enough. And you were desperate for freedom. And you were desperate for somebody to come along and through their generosity make a way so you could be pulled out of this and into freedom. And so God came and God made a way. And now that you have, here's how I want you to live your life. I want you to live your life in such a way that you would, you would continue with that same kind of generosity that you've received when you had not, that you would carry that same kind of generosity. And that what, now that you have, that you would share with those who have not, that you would be someone who can supply for those who are in need. And by the way, this is all post the tithe. The tithe is already set in place. That was set in place in the book of Genesis in Abraham. It was later instituted in the law, but at this point they're practicing not only the tithe, but generosity beyond the tithe. So we see here in the Old Testament, God calling people to radical generosity, radical living, radical trust in Him, and, and a life lived in such a way that it's not just about you and yours, but it's about sharing with those who are in need. That's the Old Testament. Now let's go over to the New Testament. And look at pre the ministry of Jesus. Look at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Let me set this up for you. This is John the Baptist. You guys remember him? John the Baptist was the guy who was the the forerunner of Jesus. He came to make a way for Jesus. He came to be the one. He he makes statements like, like, I want to decrease so that he can increase. Right? So, so the whole point of John is that people would, would, he would elevate Jesus and the ministry of Jesus through his life. Sounds a little bit like us, right? That we're called to be a people that when the world looks at us, they don't just see us, but they see Christ in us, the hope of glory. That they see through our life, the ministry of Jesus is elevated through our life. So we got John the Baptist here doing what he does, baptizing people, teaching people about what it's going to look like in this new kingdom reality. He says this in Luke 3 verse 8. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit. Here's what he's saying. There, there should be some fruit in your life that is evidence of the salvation work on your life. There should be some fruit in your life. Now, the, the, the fruit is not to win your salvation. The fruit is a product of the fact that you have salvation. There should be fruit in your life that evidences that God is a part of, of your life. Produce that kind of fruit. That fruit should be coming out of your life. 
So the people say, what does that look like? Verse 10, what should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Notice here that every example that John the Baptist gives, every example that this guy who came to make a way to point people to Jesus, this guy, every example that he gives in in response to the question, how do we bear fruit in, in accordance with repentance? Every example that he gives has to do with money and possessions. Be generous. Don't be stingy. Don't take advantage of other people. Give your money and possessions. Be free. Live open-handedly with your life. So we've looked at Old Testament, New Testament, pre the ministry of Jesus. Now let's look at what Jesus had to say. When you study the life of Jesus related to talking about money, there's two major themes that we see. Both are heart-related. One is mammon, this word called mammon, and the other is this word called greed. Somebody say greed. You can't say greed without it kind of even feeling a little evil. Greed, right? You have to make that face, greed. Mammon and greed. And both of these things are heart issues that can affect every person. We don't like to admit that we can be greedy, but we can be greedy. Greed can infiltrate every person's heart. So let's start with mammon. Jesus says this, Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Notice this thing that he's talking about can be a master in your life. For either he will hate the one and love the other or will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So what is mammon? Mammon is a word that means money, wealth, and possessions. It can also mean not just the possessions that you have, but the possessions that you want to have. The possessions that you don't even know that you want to have that someday you will want to have. That, that's mammon. But beyond it being like literal stuff, it's also a spirit that can get on that stuff. And it's a spirit, that that word mammon also means this, that in which one trusts. So mammon is this spirit that comes along that can get on your money, that can get on your possessions, that can get on your stuff, and and cause you to believe that this is what I have to put my trust in. This is what I have to rely on. And think about the, 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 the things we believe about money. If I just had more money, I'd have more joy, I'd have more peace. If I had more stuff, I'd be happier. If I had more money, I, I, you know, I'd have a little bit more power. I could kind of control things a little bit better if I, just, if I just have more money. These are lies that we come to believe based on money. And this is why Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money because you can't fully serve God and walk in faith with God when, you're, when, you, when what, that in which you believe is money. That in which you trust is money. And so what happens is through mammon, Satan makes promises. If you just have it, you'll, you'll have joy. If you just have it, you'll, you'll feel better. But let me just ask you, when you get more money, when you get more stuff, does that really make you satisfied? No. Like we all know that. It's never enough. The moment we get more, we just find new things to buy and we find more stuff that we want. So listen, money is not the answer to your problem. Even if money is your problem, let me tell you, money is not the answer to your problem. That's why you never see anyone coming up to Jesus with a problem and Jesus says, you know what? Give that guy some cash. (laughs) Why? Because that wasn't the answer. What people needed was a touch of Jesus. What people needed was the wisdom of Jesus. What people needed was an encounter with Jesus. If your problem today is you're financially in a difficult situation, you don't just need somebody to hand you a check. What you need is an encounter with God. And it's through that encounter that God can check you, change what needs to be changed in you so that you can move ahead with him into what it is he has for you. Somebody say amen. Amen. Money is not the answer to your problem. You know that. You know that. More stuff is not the answer. So mammon is stuff, it's money, and it's this this tool that Satan will try to use to steal your heart away from God and to get you to start putting your trust in your stuff and and really to put your stuff, your, your trust in your ability to produce, your ability to be your own provision. So we've got to guard our heart against mammon. The other issue is is greed. Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 12, starting verse 16. He says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. 
Sounds like, you know, kind of smart investing, savings accounts, putting some money away. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Sounds like the American dream of retirement. It's getting quiet up in this church. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Now, let me be clear here. Jesus is not calling people fools who have a financial plan for their future. There is complete legitimacy in having savings accounts, in having rainy day funds, in, in, in having a, a plan for your retirement so that you're not a burden for your family, for being able to be someone who leaves an inheritance to not only your children, but your children's children, to being someone who has a plan for putting your kids through college. Like all of that is legitimate and the Bible can back up most of that very well. Okay. The, the issue here is not like God saying, hey, I don't want you saving money. The, the issue here is the issue of greed. What Jesus is speaking to is this caution. It's a cautionary tale. This story is a cautionary tale against what greed can do in your life. We know this because in verse 15, before he gets into all this, he says this, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. So Jesus is not against financial planning, but here's the danger. There's a tipping point where prudence can tip into greed where we move from just sound financial planning to this idea of what we want our life to look like in the future and not really submitting that or surrendering that to God. And we get greedy with it. And that's what Jesus is warning against. He says, watch out, be on guard. If you take those two Greek words and you put them together, the idea behind those is if we're not careful, the greed of the cultural times we are living in will infiltrate and influence our spiritual and moral lives. And let's be real. We are living in a greedy world, aren't we? It's a very greedy world. We want more. We want new. We want upgrades. It's just the world we live in. And if we're not careful, it'll get on us. And we'll start to live that same way. I, I was reading this, this week, this guy named Oliver James. He's a psychologist. He wrote about this, this issue. Uh, he calls it the virus of affluenza. Affluenza. He says this, affluenza is a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition, a burning envy, an obsessive desire to keep up with the Joneses that can lead to severe depression and anxiety. It entails placing a high value on acquiring money and possessions and looking good in the eyes of others. Affluenza, a.k.a. greed. And when you study the Bible and when you study the life of Jesus, there's this kind of great dichotomy in that money and possessions, what they can do in your life, that, that what, what we possess can either become a stepping stone towards spiritual growth and kingdom fruit or a major hindrance to achieving it. So my friends, we got to wake up. Like we got to wake up to the reality. If you think that you can follow Jesus and that your wealth and possessions are not a threat to your heart, then you're either just asleep at the wheel or you just simply don't want to surrender to this aspect of kingdom living. And if, and if so, like I kind of get it. It's like Upton Sinclair says, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. I'll be in the dunk tank from 5.30 to 6. <laughs> Some of you give me the stank eye right now. <laughs> Greed is an issue that can infiltrate our heart through mammon and the spirit that of the, of the day and age we, we're living in today. Now, the good news is there's a cure, and the cure is generosity. How do we deal with the greed in our heart is we become generous people. Jesus talking to a group of Pharisees in Luke chapter 11. Pharisees, let me remind you, these were the people that, that looked good. They, they were going through the motions. If you were to see them in the temple, you'd be like, they got it together. They're doing all the right stuff, but there was an issue in their heart. And remember, that's what Jesus was always after. Get the heart right. He says this to them in verse 39. Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of, notice this word, greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Do not, uh, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside of you, in other words, Jesus is saying, okay, here's how we're going to deal with what's going on inside of you. 
Be generous to the poor. You want to deal with what's going on inside? You're going to do something on the outside. You're going to be generous to those who are in need. That, that, word gen, or that phrase, generous to the poor, means to engage in acts of mercy and justice. And Jesus says, and everything will be clean for you. When you start to walk in generosity, here's what God, Jesus is showing us here, is generosity cleans up the greedy heart. It cleans up the greedy heart. Jesus draws this direct connection between our generosity and our material possessions and the, and the purity of our hearts towards God. He goes on to say this in verse 42, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give uh, God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. And it's actually, he's talking about the tithe there. Some translations, you may have a translation that actually speaks to the tithe. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Now, I don't know if you just caught this, but that was Jesus endorsing the tithe right there. Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't tithe. He says, you should be tithing as well as engaging in acts of mercy and justice to those who are in need. This is the, the place, like the person who says, tithing's not in the New Testament. There it is, and that's Jesus endorsing it. See, I think a lot of times we make the mistake of thinking that, that what Jesus came to do is lower the bar. But that's not what he did. I love how Max Licato puts it. In Jesus, we see a radical raising of the moral bar, not a lowering of it. He calls us to a higher standard of love, righteousness, and holiness. Think about the ministry of Jesus. He says stuff like, don't just not murder, don't hate. Don't just not commit adultery, don't lust after a woman in your heart. Don't just not kill someone, like love someone. Like he, he teaches us this greater level. Don't just love your friends, love your enemies. Don't just not retaliate, be generous. And so it's hard to imagine that a God who is continually calling us up, Jesus who's continually calling us up and speaks so much about generosity would lower the bar on this, t on this subject after his work is done. Like, are you, are you tracking with me? And that's not what we see in the New Testament church. When you look at the New Testament church in the book of Acts, what you see is a generous people. Look at this, Acts chapter 4, starting verse 32. This is after the cross. This is after the resurrection. This is after Jesus gives them the great commission. After he leaves, now these people are carrying out his call in this world. Verse 32, all the believers were united in heart and mind. They were in unity. And they felt that, they, that what they owned was not their own. In other words, it's a rental. It doesn't belong to me. It all belongs to God anyways. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land and houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. And guys, this is a mark of the new Testament church. We see over and over again, beyond just what the Bible teaches us, historically we see this. There, there's Roman political documents that, that speak to the idea that, that, that in the New Testament church it says they never fail to help widows, to save orphans from those who, who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the one who has nothing. 250 years after the New Testament church is established, it's reported there, that there are peasants supporting 1,500 widows. Tertullian, a first century historian, wrote this about the, the New Testament church around 180. A.D., for they are not spent upon banquets, nor drinking parties, nor thankless eating houses, but to feed the poor and to bury them, to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents, and of old persons confined now to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck, and if there happen to be any in the mines, or banished to the islands, or shut up in the prisons, for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession. That's the New Testament church. There's a guy named uh, Julian the Apostate who hated the New Testament church. He hated Christians. He hated them. And he wrote this in a letter in 361 AD called Against the Galileans. These impious Galileans not only feed their poor, but ours also. Welcoming them into the agape, they attract them as children are, as, uh, are attracted with cakes. Bunch of jerk New Testament Christians. Here's what I want you to see. The mark of the New Testament church was generosity. They were generous people. This is how they're known. How are we known today? Tim Keller summarizes it this way. The early church 
was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. Sound familiar? A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and gave practically everybody their money. And this is what it looks like. Back to Acts 4, 34. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was dis- distributed to anyone who was in need. Remember where we started in the Old Testament? It's the corners of the field. Now where are we? It's the whole field. It's everything. So, so we see throughout Scripture, we see God calling people to radical trust in Him, to building a life around this idea of open-handedness and generosity, believing that as I build my life, I don't just build it for me and mine, but I build it to help those who are in need. Why? Because I have been set free. God has freed me. He made a way for me when there was no way. And so now the same generosity that he has shared with me, I will now share with others. How do we, get, how do we begin to move towards this? I got four ideas for you. Four, four thoughts for you. Number one is this. Consider your assumptions. Consider your assumptions. You know, having a nice house, a nice car, n- nothing's wrong with that. No, God's not against that. He's not against you having nice things. He's not against you having a second, third car, a, a, a second home, a, a lake. Like, he's not against those things. The, the, the issue is this. The danger is that most of us make assumptions of increasing comfort without consulting Jesus about it. And I think what we do as, as American Christians today that's different from the New Testament church is with the New Testament church, it was, God, you can have it all. It all belongs to you. And, and I think what we've done as a culture in America is we look at our generosity and it's, okay, here's what I can do with my leftovers. God, you can have my leftovers. But for them, it was, it was all. And so if we're going to be, become generous, we might have to begin by saying, what assumptions have I made about what I'm entitled to without ever consulting Jesus? What, what have I not allowed Jesus to even put his finger on because of those assumptions? We got to be real. We got to be real with ourselves. We got to be real with God. We got to be real. God's inviting us to be a part of kingdom work in this world. And, and we can't believe that there's a part of our life that we can say, oh God, you can have it all. Well, well wait. Now you can have it all. No, it's, it's all. What assumptions have, have you made? Consider your assumptions. What assumptions have you made of what you feel entitled to where you might look at, and and you may not even realize this until I'm talking about it, but where you might say to God, God, don't even think about touching that. Like that area, I don't don't want to hear what you have to say about that. That, I I got my dreams, I got my aspirations, this is what this is going to look like, and you better not touch that. What if it's through that that God wants to make kingdom impact? Consider your assumptions. Here's number two, consider the implications. Consider the implications. What, what if that area of your heart that you've withheld from the Lord, what if it's in opening that up to God that God can do, bring about the revival and the work and the healing and the help that he wants to bring in this world? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, generosity is an act of faith. When we give with an open heart, we demonstrate our trust in God's promises, a promise of abundance and his willingness to pour blessings upon us. Henry Nouwen says, the more we give, the more room we make for God to work in our lives. Generosity and God's blessing are intertwined like a sacred dance. And if you really look at the Bible and you start to study it, when you see these outpourings of the Spirit of God, these outpourings of healing and the work of God around that, you see acts of generosity. Look at the life of Jesus. That was a generous offer. Jesus, God came to the earth and put on flesh. Wow generosity and out of that healing and life and change and work see there's something about the nature of God that that he's he's looking for people who are humble enough to surrender everything to him and courageous enough that 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 will believe that on the other side of doing that that he'll catch us it's trust it's it's faith and it's through that that God can do a work of blessing in our life and through our life now listen when I say this I'm not talking about giving to get here 
okay? This is not about like, okay, this is something I can start working so I can get God to bless my thing more. No, no, this is what this is about. God, you've been so generous to me. You've given me so much. I, I want to bless and be a part of your thing. I want to be a part of what you want to do and you can have it all. And if you need some for me to help do what it is you want to do in this world, God, I'm here, I'm surrendered. I want to be a part of what it is you want to do. I believe this church. I believe that if we want to see some of the revival and some of the renewal and some of the work that God wants to do, we want to see an outpouring of, of healing and, and salvation take place. What if that's on the other side? Of you, of, the, of you releasing that area of your heart where you've said to God, no, that's off limits, stay out of there. What if what's held some of that back is we've got places in our heart that we won't fully surrender unto the Lord? Consider the implications. What might God be able to do if all of us as the people of God chose to become generous? What might he be able to do? Here's number three, tithe and move beyond tithe and move beyond. If you're going to begin being generous, you have to begin being honest. You have to start at the beginning. And Malachi 3 says this, begin. Notice those words, begin. This is the start. And here's what I want you to understand. The tithe is not the ceiling. It's the floor. According to the New Testament, man, it is, it's, not, it's not the highest point. It's just where we should be starting from. Begin by being honest. Do honest people rob God, but you rob me day after day. You ask, how have I robbed you? The tithe and the offering, that's how. The tithe is the foundation. It's the beginning. It's where we start. But understand the New Testament, generosity is to raise the bar on that. It's to move beyond that. And I know that one of the great arguments that has been against the tithe is, well, it's not in the New Testament. Well, I've already shown you that. I've shown you Jesus endorsing it. And beyond that, the argument of like, well, I, I, I practice New Testament generosity. So you practice New Testament generosity. Remember what New Testament generosity looks like? Not the corners of the field, it's the field. And yet you don't tithe. <laughs> so you're practicing New Testament generosity, but what your generosity doesn't equal the tithe. Let me just tell you, you're not practicing New Testament generosity. You're just not. What God wants us to do is take the training wheels off and move towards greater levels of generosity through our life. You can have it all, Lord. So if you're not tithing, I want to encourage you. Begin by being honest and arrive at that level. And if you are tithing, I want to encourage you. How can you move beyond that? I just heard recently about this practice called the graduated tithe. This may be a great step for you in starting to move beyond just tithing to a greater level of generosity. The graduated tithe is this. It's where you build a budget and you start with, you know, your tithe and then you pay all your bills and you put money away for savings and all those things that you're doing. And then you have a budget and you live within that budget. And at the end of your month, before your next check comes in or whatever, you look at what's left over and you tithe off of that. So at the end of, after I've, my, I've, I've tithed my first, at the end, after I've done that, after I've paid my bills, after I've done all that, let's say I have $100 left over, then I tithe off that. I give $10 off that as a second tithe unto the Lord to move beyond just the tithe into more levels of generosity. Maybe that for you is a start in moving to greater levels of kingdom, New Testament kingdom generosity. Whatever the case may be, I encourage you, tithe and move beyond. And here's number four, set your mind on sacrifice. Set your mind on sacrifice. Mark chapter 12, there's a fascinating story. One of these stories in the Bible where you see Jesus taken back by something. He's at the temple and he's watching people give, which I think is hilarious. It, he, he sets himself up, or we'll read it here in a second. He sets himself up in such a way that as people are coming to bring their gifts, he just watches them, right? So it'd be like our, our offering boxes in the back. He'd just be sitting there watching you bring your offering. So Jesus is watching people give. Let me say that again. Jesus is watching people give. Got that? Okay, just so you know. It says this in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money in the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins with only worth only a few cents, calling his disciples over to them. In other words, Jesus is like, you got to see this, guys. This is amazing. You gotta, I, I got to show you something. I got to point you to something. And listen, as he's calling them over, he's calling you over today. That's why he did this. So you could see this today. 
Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. It's interesting, the highest praise in the Bible given to giving by Jesus is to the smallest donation in the Bible. Why? What does it say? It says, out of her poverty. Out of her poverty. Let me ask you something. When you give, is it out of your poverty or is it mostly unconscious? Is your giving sacrificial or is it just kind of with, with your leftovers or with your extra? Sarah and I were talking about this a few months ago. And I was kind of remembering back to how giving and tithing started for me. I've been tithing since I was 15 years old. And when I first started, I remember I'd get my, I'd get my check. I'd get a paper check every two weeks. And I'm 15 years old working, you know, a little job. My checks were so pathetic, so little. But I'd get my little check and I'd look at it and I would, I'd get out my checkbook. And I'd look at, I'd look at my gross. What was, what was my gross? Because my dad taught me the government doesn't get first, God gives first, all right? So I look at the gross and I, I see what that is and I, I tithe off that amount. And you also, you round up because God deserves your best, right? So I round that number up and then I have my little pledge. I was giving extra towards the church to help with the building project, $5. So I'd write my check, I put it all together and I put it in my wallet and it was given in my heart in that moment. And I come to church on Sunday I've carried that in my wallet all weekend and I'd come to church on Sunday and there was that moment in my church where you know, we have worship and then there was a guy who'd get up and he'd give kind of a, an offering talk. Maybe you've, you've been in one of those churches before you give an offering talk and while they're doing that, I'm getting out my offering envelope and I'm filling out my little receipt with my pledge and my tithe and fill, putting it all in there, licking the envelope. And then there's a moment where we pray and I'd hold that in my hand and I'd pray, Lord, thank you. It's all yours. And I bring this to you as an offering unto you and the bucket would go by and I'd put it in there and it would go away. And I, but, but, but here's what you see. My faith and my heart were attached to my giving. And we were talking about this the other day because of stuff like automated giving. I'm a little concerned that sometimes my faith and my heart are not attached to my giving like it should be. Now listen, I am not against automated giving. It is a great blessing for us as a church, just so you know. It really is helpful, right? But... The problem is I'm concerned that as a church, when we make statements like we don't pass the bucket and we don't do offering talks, that we're raising up a generation of, of people that think that generosity is not a big deal to us, when in fact it is. Because it was a big deal to Jesus. And just so you know, this house was built on generosity. So generosity that made this church possible. And so... In, in, a, in an effort to want to change this. We're going to change some stuff about New Song Church. Now, we're not going to start uh, passing the bucket and we're not going to start doing an offering talk every week, but we are going to start reciting a giving liturgy every week. Something we're going to say together, confess together as a way of attaching ourselves, reminding ourselves of our generosity, reminding ourselves of, of God's place in our heart each and every week. So this is it. I'm going to read it to you in the next week. We'll start doing this as a church. Heavenly Father, everything I have is from you. You're the owner of all things. My money and possessions are rentals to be stewarded in love for the sake of others. Jesus generously gave himself on my behalf. And as his apprentice, I am learning to live my life in the key of extravagant generosity. I'm committed to following the pattern of Christ in all areas of my life. To take what you have given me and use it only for myself is the way of the world. You've called me to swim against selfishness and to live sacrificially, making your kingdom my priority. I desire to be a person of increasing mindful and joyful generosity until no one is in need among us. I yield to the transformative power of Christ in me. Amen. Amen. Yes. But beyond just remembrance, let me ask you for real, is your giving costing you anything? If you are giving, is it, is it costing you? Like our giving, our generosity, there should be times in our life when we have to defer a little bit to what God's asking us to do. Maybe defer some planned purchases, some experiences, some indulgences. We, we, set, that stuff, we, set, we set that stuff to the side so we can do whatever it is that God is asking us to do. There should be some sacrifice in your generosity. 
Dr. Tony Evans says this, true generosity is measured by the extent of your sacrifice, not the size of your surplus. Billy Graham says, to give sacrificially is to reflect the nature of God who gave his son for us. Think about that. Does your giving, does your generosity reflect the generosity of God towards you? You know what God did with, with, with Jesus? Let me remind you, you were a slave. You may not have been in Egyptian captivity, but at one point in your life, you were a slave to sin and you were desperate and you needed help and you were, you were counting on the generosity of someone else to come along and make a way so you could be brought out of that slavery and into freedom. And so God came and John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world that what did he do? He gave, what did he give? He gave his best, he gave his first, he gave his all. And Jesus is a gift, a generous, extravagant gift that God gave to us to set us free. And now that we've experienced his generosity, our response to his generosity is generosity, extravagant generosity, that our life, through our life, we would echo the generosity that's been displayed through us. You see, what God does is God models what he expects. And what God shows us through the giving of Jesus is he shows us where we are in his heart. Let me ask you, does your generosity express that same kind of love for God through your life? Not in some areas. Like God, God wants all. God doesn't want to be, I've said this a thousand times here at New Song Church, but it's true. God doesn't want to crack your top 10. He wants to be number one. Is he number one in every area of your life? I want you to do me a favor. Would you stand with me, New Song Church? I'm going to invite our altar ministry team to come down at this time. And here's how, how I want to end our service tonight. I want to just take a moment and I want us, we're going to go into a time of worship here. And I just want you to take this moment and to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Invite the Lord to speak to you. And I want you to ask him, Lord, what are you saying to me in this message? And I, I believe that for some of you, God's going to call you to a response. Maybe that response is you see the generosity of God towards you and you've never really surrendered your life over to the Lord beyond your finances, your heart, and you recognize that God is calling you to salvation today and you want to surrender your life to the Lord. We'd love to pray with you over that. Or maybe God just speaks to you specifically about your generosity, about a place where you've been stingy towards Him, about a place where you've held something back and God's calling you to respond to that. Maybe your response is to come down and just say, I, I want to repent. I've been stingy. I've been greedy. Maybe your, your, your response is, hey, I'm going to start tithing. I'm going to, I've never done that before, but I'm going to start doing it. Would you pray over me? Whatever the case is, we, we'd love to pray with you and join our faith with you and what God's doing for you today. So if that's you, if you feel God calling you towards that or towards any kind of response today, I want to encourage you to come down. We'd love to pray for you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for every person in this room. I thank you for the generosity of God that's been displayed towards us. We thank you that we serve a generous Lord. Jesus, you've been so good to us, so generous towards us. Thank you for giving your all for us, your best, your first, everything. Lord, we wanna be people who reflect your image in this world. We wanna be a people who are generous so that your kingdom can come, your will can be done, that there's nothing in us that's holding us back from the work you wanna do in this world. So Lord, we just surrender. We say, you can have it all. You can have it all every area. We hold nothing back from you, Lord. Let that be the cry of our heart. Let that be the truth and the reality of our life in all areas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening. For more information on our church or for more resources to help you grow in your faith, go to newsongpeople.com or download our app by searching for New Song Church OKC in the App Store.